0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening.
1: From Acts, chapter 2, and is going to read that to us.
0: Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God had made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, for, the, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And
1: right over to Pat. Pat's going to come and speak to us. Thanks, Steve. Good afternoon and happy Easter Sunday, everyone. Today, of course, is a day of celebration, as I think has been really well articulated throughout the service. It's a day that vindicates everything we believe. As followers of Jesus Christ, it's a day to remind ourselves of why we can have such confidence in our faith. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Patrick I spent four years studying philosophy and theology at Cambridge University, and as I did so, I began to specialize in the first 50 to 100 years of Christianity, the, first fi- the history of the first 50 to 100 years of Christianity. And the more I studied the early years of our faith, the more I realized that I could be completely confident in the truth of the Easter story. I found so much evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, and it's that evidence that I have the joy of sharing with you today. Now, for those of you who have heard me before, you probably know that normally when I speak, I like to stick very, very closely to the particular Bible passage at hand. And that is good practice, because we believe the Bible isn't just an interesting book, but rather that it's the Word of God, and its words have genuine spiritual power. However, today, because it's Easter, it's Baptism and Sunday, and, and because I have a slightly shorter time slot... I'm going to take us a little off-piste instead. So we are basically going to follow the grooves of Peter's first great sermon, but not in as much detail as usual, so I hope that's okay with everyone. So, evidence. Easter Sunday, evidence. The evidence that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord and Messiah. There's so much to say, but I'm going to give us five points in particular. And firstly... We're going to talk about miracles. So look down at that sheet in front of you. Look at verse 22. Can you see what Peter says in verse 22? He says, Jesus was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Guys, here lies one of the first great claims about Jesus, that he was a miracle worker. Now, no other figure in all of history has been so widely believed to have performed miracles. No one. No one else is like this when we look through history. Here we have Peter talking about Christ's miracles, but of course he's not nearly the only one. All of Jesus' early followers proclaim this remarkable fact. Jesus Christ was a miracle worker. There's no precedent for this in history. No one has this depth of evidence around around these miracles. And perhaps most interestingly of all, even Jesus' enemies agree that he performed miracles. Now that is interesting. For example, we know of a document called the Babylonian Talmud. This was written by Orthodox Jews around the time of Jesus who hated the new Christian movement. And they tried to discredit it. And in order to do so, the Talmud basically says, yes, your mate Jesus performed miracles, but they were by the power of the devil. They were dark magic. That's what the Talmud says. It probably says something like, they were by the power of Beelzebub. Now, do you see they've slightly given the game away there? Do you see that? Because if Jesus' miracles were all made up, the easiest thing for his enemies to say would be, you're all being deceived. He never did any actual miracles. You've made them up. But they don't say that. They're forced to agree that he did do amazing signs and wonders, just like Peter says. And then what they do is they find a sinister way of explaining them. It's very interesting. It's very interesting for the skeptics to take that on. So what do we find? We find everyone agrees Jesus performed miracles. His many, many followers and even his enemies. See what Peter is saying in verse 22, Jesus was accredited by to due by miracles, wonders, and signs. No other historical figure rival rivals Jesus in this way. This is pretty unique stuff. So, as we dig into the evidence, it seems we find a miracle worker. But it doesn't stop there. Of course it doesn't. In Jesus, we also find probably the greatest moral teacher that ever lived. Here is a man from a poverty-stricken, largely illiterate backwater of the Roman Empire. And yet from this same man comes the greatest teaching of all time. So how about this one? Matthew 7 verse 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's actually a pretty remarkable ethical statement that, and it still reverberates today. Clearly it's traced back to this historical figure Jesus. We take this saying for granted now. We hear a lot of people quote it, but no one had ever actually produced it before. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's really good stuff. Or Matthew 6, 25. I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothes? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? He goes on. He gives us great teaching on worry. Again, it's probably familiar to many of us, and many of us, uh, particularly people who don't go to church don't even realize it's from this man Jesus Christ or Matthew 5:38, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I tell you do not resist an evil person if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn the other cheek to them as well do unto others as you would have them do unto you turn the other cheek heard these before eh? ever stop to think about the man who first taught them and we could go on and on. Of course, we could. We could read the story of the prodigal son, or, or, the, or the story of the sermon, or the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Or how about the story of the wise man who built his house upon the rock? We could go on and on. Such a rich body of teaching. This man was the greatest teacher of all time, bar none. I wonder, can you quote Plato? So I love asking my friends this: Can you quote Socrates? Can you quote Confucius or Cicero? No, I doubt many of you can, maybe some of you can, but not many of us, very few of us. But all of you can quote Jesus Christ. And that may be obvious in a church context, but I think if we went outside these doors, we would find pretty much everyone could quote Jesus Christ, at least some point in his teaching. So unlike all those other blokes, Cicero, Socrates, Plato, great, great though they were, unlike all those other blokes, also note that Jesus probably never received any formal education, And then on top of that, he's not even famous for his teaching. That's not even remotely what he's most famous for, great though it was. It's almost like another thing he did on the side while coming to die and rise again. So we haven't, we've talked about his miracles. We haven't even talked about his resurrection. We haven't talked about the prophecy we're about to get there. But here so far, we've got these miracles and then we've got this teaching. Do you see what Peter is saying here in Acts 2? He's saying, friends, the evidence is building up. And what we say today is that the Easter story is not wishful thinking. It's truth. It's true. Of course, it doesn't stop there. So do you see what Peter does in verses 17 to 21? What he does in 17 to 21 there is he quotes the Old Testament. And effectively, what he's saying is, guys, all this remarkable stuff that you've witnessed, it wasn't even a coincidence. It was all planned. It was all predicted and prophesied. And indeed, that is exactly what we find when we look at Jesus Christ. It is absolutely remarkable how accurately, Jesus Christ fulfills various Hebrew texts written between 600 and 1500 years before he came. Again, there is no other historical figure who comes even remotely close to fulfilling prophecy in the same way that this man Jesus Christ does. Now, just a quick point. Do remember that for prophecy to be effective, it needs to be predictive, not prescriptive. So you couldn't have an Old Testament prophecy saying, in 30 AD, in the blue building in Galilee, at 2 p.m., a man is going to say, I'm the Savior. Because all that would would happen is at 30 AD, uh, in 30 AD, at 2 p.m., in the blue building in Galilee, you'd get a rake of chances rocking up and saying, I am the Savior. I'd probably want to be one of those guys. Anyway, you see the point. There does need to be a little bit of vagueness to prophecy so that you don't get numerous people actively going out their way to fulfill it. You need to be able to look back on it and then realize, ah, oh, of course. Look, that was fulfilled. It has to be predictive, not prescriptive. And that is what we find with Jesus Christ. When we peer, when we peer into Old Testament prophecy with a genuine attention to detail, we find something absolutely remarkable. So let's start, with the, uh, let's start with the prophecy that Peter references here in front of us. See verse 20 and 21 in front of you? See what it says? It says, the sun will be turned to darkness And the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is taken from a book called Joel, and it's unquestionably written many, many years before Jesus. And interestingly, it seems to be using the language of a lunar eclipse. In fact, many other ancient documents speak of lunar eclipses in the same way. So, do you hear what Joel is saying? He's saying hundreds, of hundreds, of year, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. Joel is saying that on the great day of the Lord, a day when people will begin to call on him and be saved, and isn't that exactly what happens because of Easter? On that day, there will be some crazy phenomenon where the sun goes black and the moon goes red. A lunar eclipse, if you like, to signify this great day. Well, in 1990, enter Sir Colin Humphreys, a professor of physics at Cambridge University. Now, being an astronomer, Humphreys worked out a groundbreaking method to accurately date all the lunar eclipses that have happened throughout history in the area around the Middle East. And I love this. What did he find? There was a lunar eclipse across the Middle East on Friday, April the 3rd, 33 AD, between the the time of 6.20 and 7.10 p.m., the date of the Passover festival, the very date that Jesus Christ was crucified. So when you hear Joel hundreds of years beforehand saying the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And when you hear all the biblical writers saying, yes, it was amazing. The sky went black and the universe shuddered as Jesus died on that cross. I hope you begin to realize something utterly remarkable. That this man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled prophecy in a way that no other historical figure ever has before and ever will again. And of course, it's not just Joel. That's just, a, that's just one. That's, a, that's one of so many. The Joel text is... One of so, so many. And as I say, I could stand up here talking about how Jesus fulfilled prophecy for hours on end. And you know me, I'm very long-winded. I could and I very happily would, but I'm not going to. So in your own time, maybe this week, read Isaiah 9. Read about the child who who will come from an obscure backwater called Galilee and yet will be called Mighty God. Do you know how radical a claim that is from a monotheistic Jewish text? Yet it's exactly what happens all those years later. Jesus comes from Galilee and is called mighty God. Or better yet, read Isaiah 53, probably for me the most striking one. Read about a divine character who will one day die specifically for the sins of his people, but will then live again. In fact, it doesn't just say he will die. In Isaiah 53, it's more specific than that. It says he will be pierced for our sins. 300 years before the Carthaginians have invented crucifixion. And here is Isaiah saying this suffering servant character will be pierced for us, for our sins. Pierced. We find similar language in Zechariah 12. Again, all ancient texts, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. Zechariah 12 says God's coming down to Jerusalem. And in Zechariah 12 verse 10, it says they shall look on me, the one they have pierced. God being pierced. Such a specific verb, pierced. Or, and as I say, there are many, many more, but this will be my last the, the last. the last one we'll look at. Check out Psalm 22. Maybe that's the best of all, actually, Psalm 22. Here we find King David pouring out his heart to God. And the New Testament tells us that King David is a sort of prototype for Jesus Christ. His whole life was a foreshadowing of the greater King David who is going to come, Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in Psalm 22, one of David's great songs... He says, listen to this, he says, he says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. This is Psalm 22, many, many, many years, hundreds of years before Jesus. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my clothing. They pierce my hands and my feet. Do you think that's accurate prophecy or what will happen to Christ? Well, according to Acts, Peter does. And I certainly do too. So let's recap. There is so much evidence that Jesus Christ performed miracles. A lot of evidence around miracles, immeasurably more than for any other historical figure. Then this same man produced probably the greatest moral teaching anyone has ever delivered. We looked at his teaching, so there's his miracles, there's his teaching, but of course it doesn't stop there because it wasn't a coincidence. That Jesus Christ performed miracles and taught with divine authority. It was all pre- predicted in advance. Jesus Christ of Nazareth fulfilled prophecy in a way that no other historical figure ever has. This is a unique man. You can see why billions of people throughout history have called him Lord and Savior. Friends, what we say on Easter Sunday is that the Easter story is not wishful thinking, it's true. And then we haven't even spoken about the resurrection yet. So let's, let's bounce on. Resurrection, eh? So the evidence for the resurrection. Again, where to begin? Again, much like the other three points, I go on and on through evidence after evidence. But I won't. And it's on the condition that you don't mistake shortage of time for shortage of evidence. Because there's so much. Well, there's many arguments for the truth of the resurrection. But one particularly telling argument arises when we ask, where did the body go? Now think with me, no one who was simply apathetic to Jesus' cause, who just wasn't really bothered by him, would have gone through the extreme lengths of stealing and then concealing this desperately sought-after body. So that leads us with two options. Either Jesus' followers stole the body, or Jesus' enemies stole the body. But we know his enemies couldn't have stolen and hidden the body, because they then spent the next century appalled and disgusted by the new Christian movement, and desperately trying to discredit it. The Jewish establishment hated Jesus because he revolutionized their orthodox religion. So if they, had, if they had organized the stealing of the body, then they simply would have produced it. But they were never able to do so. What about the political establishment, i.e. the Romans? Well, what do we find? They hated the Christians too. Because their subversive beliefs claim that Christ was greater than, than Caesar. So if they had stolen the body, they too would have produced it to put an end to what various Roman writers considered a very dangerous myth. But they never could produce a body either. So, okay, his enemies, we might agree on that. His enemies didn't steal and conceal the body. Well, what about his earliest followers? Maybe they took it Of course they didn't take it, because the early Christian movement was one of the most persecuted religious movements of all time. In fact, many, if not most, of Jesus' earliest and closest followers were martyred because they were convinced that Christ had risen. Why would they do it if they had hidden the body all along? Why would you die for a myth you knew you had created? And again, be assured, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't an idea that developed over time as eyewitnesses began to die off. No, no, quite the opposite. The resurrection, as Steve talked about, was always the first key principle of the very earliest Christians. It is the centerpiece of all the literature produced in the first decades after Christ's death. So who took the body? Well, no one took the body. Because as the women in Mark 16 are told outside the tomb he is risen, he is not here. And again, let me touch on that, because another great piece of evidence, have you noticed how the first people who find the empty tomb in all the gospel accounts are women? Now, quite disgracefully, in the Roman world, whether we like it or not, women were not allowed a voice in the court of law. So if, if for example, Leanne, saw me being robbed on the street. I couldn't call, if I was in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, I couldn't call on Leanne to be a witness in court for me. Because it was believed in the Greco-Roman world, her word couldn't be relied upon. Now, of course, do remember that Jesus is spectacularly countercultural in his confrontation of the misogynistic culture in first century Judea. And that's an interesting topic for another day. The reason I raise it is because it's the woman who first see Jesus risen from the dead in all the gospel accounts. If Jesus' first followers were fabricating the story of his resurrection, it would be a ludicrous error to describe women as the first people to have found the empty tomb. That would make it easily dismissible. And yet, that's exactly what they do. Why? Because they believed that the resurrection wasn't wishful thinking. They believed it was truth, and it needed to be accurately recorded. When we look at the New Testament writers, when we look at the early church, we find a radical body of people who en masse are completely convinced of the historical fact of the resurrection. And en masse they suffered for it in the most horrendous ways. So miracles, teaching, prophecy, resurrection, the body of evidence is too big to ignore. Today on Easter Sunday, be certain of it, guys. Be certain of it as we go on and live this year. We stand on truth. To be a Christian is not to be barking mad. To be barking mad is to ignore this man that billions of people have called Lord and Savior. And lastly, the stunning growth of the early church. Now, remember... Myths develop over a long period of time. There's a lot of people that have done studies, studies on myths, and quite naturally what you expect is uh, the, the later, it, the, uh, as you get further and further away from the date of the alleged myth, the myth grows bigger and bigger and what actually happened? That's what we find when we look at the old English myth of Beowulf. After 300, 400 years, the idea that this, this character slayed the monster Grendel, so it goes, begins to take shape. But that is not what happened with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instantly, the early church begins to grow, and it grows rapidly. And all these early believers proclaim the same key belief, that this man Jesus died and then came back to life. The message of the Easter story spread like wildfire through the Roman world. And that is exactly what you would expect to see, if indeed it is true. The early church had no military, no economic, no political power, but that didn't matter because it had the power of truth. The truth of the most remarkable event of all time. The one time in history when God came down to us so that we could know him forevermore. Now just to prove how, how quickly the early church grew, behind me is a passage from the famous Roman historian Tacitus. Tacitus is writing about the fire of Rome in 64 AD. And what he says is the Emperor Nero blamed the fire on the early Christians in order to try and stamp out their subversive movement. So I'll read it quickly. I'll fly through it. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Again, this is only 30 years after Christ. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, i.e. crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, see what they think of this this Christianity, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted." Not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting how much Tacitus knew already about Christians, that they followed Christ, a man crucified by Pontius Pilate. But even more interesting is that clearly within 30 years of Jesus, the early church has spread so far and wide beyond Judea that Nero chooses to blame Christians for the great fire of Rome. So how do we know the Easter story can be trusted? Well, says Peter in Acts, and well, say the church 2,000 years later, look at the evidence, look at the miracles, look at the teaching, look at the prophecy, look at the resurrection, look at the growth of the early church, and much, much more besides. There is too much to ignore. Friends, hear what Peter says in Acts 2, and let's take our stand with him today. He says, the Easter story is not wishful thinking, it is truth. Miracles, prophecy, resurrection, the growth of the early church, the Easter story is true. And just quickly, so what? So what what if it is, you might be thinking. I have a good friend who's in the British Navy, and so he does know a lot about boats, and he believes that the sinking of the Titanic was all part of a giant pre-planned insurance fraud. And I have to say, when I hear his arguments, I find them pretty compelling. But ultimately... I can sit on the fence. I don't have to agree with him, I don't have to disagree with him. So here's where I stand on the sinking of the Titanic. Ready, here's what I think. I think it probably wasn't a pre-planned insurance fraud, but I recognize there's a small chance it actually could have been an insurance fraud. There we go. Because it just doesn't matter what I believe about how the Titanic or why the Titanic sunk. It's interesting, I like chatting about it, but it makes no difference to my life. So I'll be sensible and I'll sit on the fence with it. But not so with the Easter story. What we see in Peter's speech is that the decision we make on the Easter story is the most important decision we will ever make. It's not a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. The Easter story is either true or it is a myth. There are many great things about postmodernity, but you cannot be postmodern about this one. Jesus Christ is either a nobody or he is the risen Lord and Messiah who we must make our king. So which one is it? Hear the evidence, make your call, and then act on your call. I just wonder, are you sitting on the fence today? Maybe as you look at your life decisions, you realize you've been sitting on the fence for some time. Yes, you come to church, but you're not all in. Jesus was probably a good guy, but he's not your king. Instead, you're nice and moderate and balanced, and you sit on the fence. It's so easy to do. Well, maybe Easter Sunday is the day to get off the fence, eh? Because that's what Easter Sunday is all about. It's about making Jesus king. And you see what Chloe did today? She publicly said in the most explicit terms possible, I sit on the fence no longer. She said, I'm all in with Jesus. I repent of all the ways I've rejected him and his laws, sometimes in a subtle way, sometimes in a very deliberate way, and I make him my Lord and my Savior and my king. That's what baptism is. It's getting off the fence once and for all. So have you been sitting on the fence? Well, no longer today. Receive the promise of Easter. Repent and be baptized. Give your whole life. Give your dreams. Give your holiday plans. Give your career. Give your sport. Give your future partner. Give your wallet. Give your diary. Give it all to Christ. Give it all to the king today. Today is all about the good news of Easter. Also, do hear the warning of Easter. We see that in verses 36 and 37. You might like to read that in your own time. We see that the warning of Easter is that actually the Christ we killed has come back to life. And that means that one day we will meet him personally and he will hold us accountable for how we have treated him. The question of Easter is he is the risen king, but is he your risen king? We have a lot of non commitment, partial commitment in our society. But there's no room for that at Easter. The resurrection is either myth or it's truth. And if it's truth, then that means Christ is indeed the king of everything. Maybe this May, with all the activity around Renew Month, maybe it's a time to truly make him your king. To renew your heart, to renew his authority in your life, to renew his kingship. I was thinking, yeah, we 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 do New Year's resolutions. It's the icebreaker every year, and has been for five years. We do New Year's resolutions. Why why not do why not do an Easter resolution? So Easter Sunday, a chance to go back to basics, to remind each other why we believe. And hear Peter's first sermon. Why do we believe? Because of evidence. Because of his miracles, his teaching, the prophecy he fulfilled, his resurrection, the growth of his church. And then so many other reasons besides. I've only scratched the surface today. Because Easter Sunday, it's not wishful thinking. It's true. He's risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for everything you left behind so that we could see and know you now. And most of all, Father, we thank you that you rose again. And we just pray that you would help us to believe with all our hearts. Lord, we think what the man in Mark Gospel cried out to you. I believe, Lord, cure me in my unbelief. And would that be the story for us? And would that be the story this May? Would it be a powerful month with Renew Renew Month? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.